0: Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. It's another episode of The Remnant Podcast. One of the most common pieces of uh, feedback that we get is for me to stop talking about how I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm not going to talk about how I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to tell you we're doing something a little different today. Um, I am, we do not have a guest. I do have the, um, the nerd duo here of, of Michael Pratt and, uh, and Jack Butler. And, and in a minute, I'll take the ball gag out of Jack Butler's mouth. But for now, um, I just want to cover some basic stuff. First of all, I want to thank you guys so much. You know, we're only, I think this is our eighth podcast, and we are already, I am told, far and away, uh, the number one national review podcast. And I've had a little bit of a uh, a growth experience and a learning experience in the last couple weeks. You know, we talked about last week, the commentary roast and, and how weird that was and 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 flattering and, and insulting at the same time sort of like sort of made me feel like a teenager going on a date with Roy Moore. But um, the the success of this podcast is apparently causing uh, great uh, agita in certain quarters among friends of mine. Uh, Rich Lowry on the latest episode of The Editor's Podcast threw some shade our way by saying some prattling on something about how I have some sort of... He couldn't get through my entertaining rant, um, and he was very jealous of our laser sound. So they put a laser sound in their podcast, and that's fine. I mean, I, I suppose Rich's idea of wild creativity is just basically copying me. That's great. Um, good for him. But it's also funny because he just he wasn't telling the truth. He said he couldn't get through my entertaining rant at the beginning of the show, and yet... I'd gotten an email from him the other day asking me if it was really true that my last name was Avoskovsky, which came up later in the show. Mm. So not only was he throwing shade, he was f- throwing falsehoods my
1: way. Hercule Perot over here.
0: <laughs> That's right. And so then there's the um, uh, they're the guys at the Weekly Substandard, and apparently the fact that this podcast already has well into the six hundreds, almost seven hundred reviews, most of them positive is driving that little coven of nerd boys nuts because they only have in the 300s and they're they're bleeding about it and i, I want to say up front jonathan last has been very kind to this podcast and he said some wonderful things but um just today i got i was getting uh, dm'd on twitter from people about how at the, on the latest uh weekly substandard podcast uh they were going after me um once again a particularly sunny bunch Sonny Bunch, you know, was was appalled that they only have 300 or so reviews despite their constant apparent begging and sycophantic wheedling of the audience to get them to the new reviews. And I have over 600 and he thought it was outrageous that a jackaninny, I believe that was the phrase he used, like Jonah Goldberg would have so many more reviews than them. And, you know, uh, I know that Donald Trump has made apophasis um, a acceptable term of rhetoric these days. For those of you who don't know what apophasis is, it is the art of saying, or the habit of saying, I'm not going to say Kim Jong-il is a fat slob, but, you know, that kind of thing. Saying you're not going to say something and then saying it, essentially.
1: That's in Latin, that's praetoricians, the same term. Is that right? Yes. Okay,
0: I'm going to throw you a cookie in a second.
1: (laughs) Well, you took the ball gag out, obviously.
0: (laughs) I could put it back. (laughs) Um, And then... uh, so I'm not going to call Sonny Bunch a, you know, crapulent bandersnatch or anything like that. But it is sort of, you know, shocking the way these guys are just suffused in their own bitterness. And no one takes the cake more than one John Podoretz himself, who this quivering mass of insecurities, who, despite being incredibly gracious and in doing this roast for me in, in New York and saying these wonderful things, I spent... 10 15 minutes on the Ricochet Glop podcast, basically having to talk him off a ledge because Rich Lowry had during the roast had called me the greatest writer of my generation, which is not true. But the fact that John was so unbelievably triggered by it was a problem. And so he brought up on the Glop podcast what he said, what really rankles him is that I have so many more followers than him on Twitter, but he's so much better at it than I am. Mm. And uh, on this, I will will come to my own defense and say, that's not true. And so I offered to run a poll on Twitter. And he said, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that because, you know, you have so many more followers and blah, 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 blah. And it wouldn't be fair. And I said, OK, so I won't. And then the next day, I discovered that John had done a Twitter poll. And I I don't want to use the word crushed. Devastated might mm-hmm. work. Um, uh,
1: what's the word Obama used? Uh, shellacked?
0: Shellacked. I shellacked John Podore.
1: Or uh, the word Trump used, schlonged.
0: Schlonged. I, I I don't want to say I schlonged John Podore. This is oh, a family he just did. It's a family <laughs> podcast. Um, but uh, so before it was even before the poll was even out, my lead was 65 percent to 35 percent. And John not only. Deleted the 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 poll. <laughs> he accused me of asking Twitter to delete the poll, and then claimed that I asked Twitter to delete the poll because I so clearly had lost. So it is it is lies upon sausage spined insecurity um, for as far as the eye can see. And I just I thought better of my friends. So um, what I'm asking of you guys just. You know, remember that episode of Seinfeld where he tries to return the, um, what was it, the coat for spite? Um, Michael here tells me it's important to get a lot of reviews and a lot of five-star reviews, and it's good for reasons that I, I've yet to have f- uh, fully explained to me. And I take Mike at his word that that's true, and everyone says that, and that's why everyone begs for it. That's why, you know, uh, the guys at the Weekly Substandard are like Henry in the Snows of Kenosa or, uh, you know, or or... <laughs> John Belushi and Blues Brothers with Carrie Fisher um, on his on their knees begging for reviews like weak little girly men. But I'm not going to do that. I want to I want to ask you guys for more reviews purely out of spite, purely out of a sort of, you know, uh, a Hebrew Bible sense of smiting and wrath and really rub it in. I actually think this would be a great opportunity
2: to tell iTunes, on the remnant reviews, what you think about the weekly substandard. And then yes. we will, next week, I think we should, or maybe the week after Thanksgiving, we should read the best one on air. We should read our favorite one on air. I think that's an excellent idea. Um, and be creative, people. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of material here to work with.
0: That's true. Well, although I was going to say be creative, but, you know, be more creative than they are at the weekly substandard. So I tuned into this, right? I don't, I don't listen to every week, but I listened today because I heard that, you know, Sunny Bunch was trying to call me out like I was Marlo and he was Omar from The Wire, right? Putting stink on my name in the street. And so I listened to this thing, and so they all do this kind of like, you know, the Dungeons & Dragons Club meeting at high school before the actual reading of the minutes commences, and they're all talking about, how was your week, and how was your week, and blah, 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 blah. I listened to Jonathan Last talk for, by my rough calculation, 52 years Mm. about going (laughs) to a all-you-can-eat buffet somewhere in Bailey's Crossing. And literally, he goes from, well, they've got an American food section with some pasta salad, all the way through the various Asian delights. And and they're listening to this like it's friggin' fascinating. And I'm like, I was like, I don't don't understand. I mean, no wonder they have so many fewer reviews than I do. And then... I'm like, okay, so they finally got this chit-chat out of the way. You know, I've, I've now grown... My beard is now at ZZ Top level because I've been listening to this for, for so long. And all of a sudden, they switch to um, uh, Vic Mattis's recap of his week. And I, I crap you not. It is a conversation about woodworking. Like, mm. I, I did not think it was possible for me to crave the, the stunning insights about the all-you-could-eat buffet conversation, but by the, the second or third hour of talking about dowels and whether you should soak them or whether you should cross-stitch the what, queen astray from the whatchamacallit on the corners of the table, um, I felt like I was an airplane I was just going to upend a jerry can of gasoline over my head and set myself on fire. So
2: it turned into an episode of This Old House, nearly.
0: That I would take that I would take a test pattern over some of that stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, when you're reviewing what you think of the Weekly Substandard, be creative. You know, not not like the guys of the Weekly Substandard. I will say this: when they finally got around to actually entertaining the audience rather than each other, um, when the orgy of mutual onanism came to an end, I will say that Vic's Gene Shallet inter- I- I- impression is really kind of brilliant and very very well done. And um, if they had opened with that, I think I would have been all, you know, I would have been... You would have been gripped. I, 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 would have, I would have been pulled in rather than, you know, uh, start cutting myself again the way yeah. I did listening to the first, you know, two or three thousand hours of that thing. Okay. Anyway.
2: This is pretty momentous. You hate listen to an episode of the Weekly
0: Substandard. Well, I only made it about 14 minutes. Okay, well, so...
1: Ah. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, s- spite and hate are the main ways that anything gets done in America today. So Yes,
0: I'm I'm giving in to the times that we are in. And so on that note, one of the reasons why I want it... So, again, I'm breaking the fourth wall. I'm not saying I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing what I want to do. As I said in the very first episode of this podcast, um, much like the G-File, the newsletter thing that I write, I do it basically because I want to do it my way. Because if I don't do it my way, I won't find it fun or entertaining. And I think then listeners probably won't find it fun and entertaining... And then I won't find it worthwhile to do, and and it won't work. So, so that's one of the reasons why we're not having a guest today. Uh, I don't want to get locked into this thing where I feel like every week, if I've got something to say, I have to have a guest. I have to force a conversation. I don't want to have. Heaven forbid, I have to talk to somebody about you know uh, all-you-can-eat buffets in 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 Exurban Virginia. So instead, I also have. Um, big chip on my shoulder about the issue of the day, Jack Butler, my emuensis, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, yes. I believe so. Uh, my major domo, is that better? Um, I,
1: I'll, the ball gag is out, I'm happy. Just <laughs> just, just
0: to breathe freely. Yeah. Um, he's been asking me to do a podcast on my own personal origin story, and I think it's not a bad idea. I'm not going to do the full tale, but... For some listeners who may or may not know, I was fairly involved in that whole Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton scandal thing. And the sudden change in the zeitgeist this week has me thinking about it a lot in a lot of different ways. We're recording this late on Thursday. Um, There's been all the Roy Moore stuff, obviously, sort of like, uh, you know, Roy Moore in a shopping mall. I'm not sure how much I want to go there. Um, But or how much I can go there but um and also we've heard these news about Al Franken and uh I will say at the outset right now there're basically two allegations about Al Franken that I saw one was being teased that was coming out later before I could find out what exactly it was and the other one is the one that broke this morning I think there will be more allegations against ac- accusations against Al Franken one o not two yes yes that's right uh more as in additional um because uh Al Franken's a jerk. And, uh, whoa, and uh, he, this thing where he was doing the sort of involuntary mammogram on the USO tour, uh, He's 50, he was like 55 years old, right? So this is like not a youthful indiscretion. This was a grown man doing something really awful. And he's not a pleasant person. His personality, I think, the personality you see is his personality. I'm sure he's got friends that love him and all that. I'm sure his family likes him, I, I would assume. Um, wouldn't be surprised either way, actually. But anyway, um, but I actually had an interesting encounter with Al Franken. Oh, this had to be about 10 years ago now. It was back when I was still at CNN. And I used to be on the Sunday show, um, uh, three-hour Sunday show. I don't know if it's still three hour State of the Nation, State of the Union or something like that. Wolf Blitzer was the host. And I was on the panel discussion thing, the sort of McLaughlin Group panel thing, in the last half hour of it. And the show's tagline was the last word in Sunday talk. And that was literally true because it came on after every other Sunday show. And so if you didn't get enough Sunday politics from Face the Nation, Meet the Press, uh, This Week with David Brinkley, uh, Fox News Sunday... Um, you could tune into CNN and watch it for two and a half hours straight through the first football game and then catch this panel I was on with Donna Brazile and and Peter Beinart and a couple other people. And, uh, anyway, so I was on that show one time and I said something, I have no recollection of what it was. It was, I know this sounds shocking, it was a somewhat glib, jokey thing that was mildly factually inaccurate, I guess, or at least I was told that, um... And I get this call at home while I was working on my first book from Al Franken. And this was back when he was working on his Rush Limbaugh's A Big Fat Idiot book or whatever it was, you know, that that Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, tour de force. And um, that he had, I think, literally like 30 Harvard research assistants on. (laughs) Um, Wow.
1: Yeah. So you're saying that I have the intelligence of 30 Harvard research assistants combined at least...
0: If you compared the products of what they did for Al Franken versus what you've done for me, I think you actually would come out ahead. But I I will take that back if it's ever repeated. Um, So uh, he calls me. And at first, he's like, chummy, chummy, smarmy, smarmy. Hey, it's Al Franken. And we talk, whatever. And I knew he didn't like me because I had written stuff about how he was unfunny before. And he had talked to a mutual acquaintance reporter about how you know what's wrong with Jonah Goldberg? Why doesn't he think I'm funny? You know, and so I, mean, I knew he had—he wasn't wasn't actually a fan of mine. But um, anyway, so I—he uh, calls me up, and then he's like, "Yeah, you know that thing you said—you know that wasn't true. You know that, right?" I said, like, "I—I I do. I don't—I don't know that that's not true." And he says, "Well, you know, I looked at these numbers and blah blah blah, and you could hear his his propeller head research assistants handing him pieces of paper, and uh, he said." you know, it just wasn't true. And, you know, I know you guys, you know, you go on there and you say these things and, you know, you know, they're not true, but it makes us a good sound bite. Right. I was like, no, that's, 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 that's not what we, it's not what I do. And, um, and he's like, well, you know, but you take, you know, you sit in the green room beforehand and you write notes and you, you prep and you get ready. And so you knew you were going to say that. Right. I was like, no, it was like, I was reading the conversation and I said what I said. And again, I don't remember what I said, but Um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that there was some factual inaccuracy in it, though I'm not sure I should. And anyway, we go round and round on this for like 20 minutes where he just keeps saying, he wants me to admit on, I assume, a recorded phone call that I deliberately lie on TV because that's what conservatives do. And, um, it's a reasonable case. yeah, Yeah. And so I will, I will, I will clean it up, uh, because apparently some people really don't like the profanity on, on this podcast, um, Andy Ferguson I know Andy Ferguson still hanging his head in shame <laughs> for having dropped an F-bomb um, but in an unbolderized fashion I said okay so let me get this straight you you just want me to tell you that I deliberately lie because that's what I do for a living I guess my only answer to you is F you very much and he was like oh no no and I, you, know, I, you know no and then I dropped a few more F-bombs on him and um, that was sort of the end of it and I waited with you know unbated breath for whenever the book came out to see how he wrote up the thing and I'm not in it. So I guess he just couldn't get it nailed down, but he came across as such an unbelievable prick. And so the idea that and such an insecure prick. Um the idea that there aren't going to be more stories. I mean maybe there won't be, but I think one of the lessons that we've learned in the last couple years more than we you know we learned it good and hard is that uh you know character is destiny and people's behavior is destiny. And so it's not shocking to me that Roy Moore has more of these allegations out, and it's not shocking to me that there will be more. It wouldn't be shocking to me if more allegations came out about against Franken, um, and my my hunch is that there are going to be a gazillion allegations coming out about Congress because that, you know, it's a it's not quite you know an outtake from the director's cut of Caligula up there, <laughs> but you know <laughs> bad things happen, and I think people are probably really happy that the PAGE program was reformed about a decade ago because there were some bad things happening back then. Mm -hmm. And in this climate, it would be just a free-for-all. But getting back to this sort of origin story thing, one of the reasons why I don't like talking about the Lewinsky thing as an origin story is I don't consider it my origin story, but a lot of people who hate my guts do. And, um, you know, so I came to Washington in 1992, 1991, my first job was here at the American Enterprise Institute, the fantastic think tank where we're recording this. Though they have no uh, connection to any of the irresponsible and jocularity that I bring to it. The fact that you started at AI though gives Jack and I great
2: hope that we too can become
0: Jonah Goldberg. Yeah, so. well, <laughs> I, I would aim higher. But great, <laughs> great
1: hope or great fear? Yeah. Um,
0: and so, uh, and so, I was here at AI for a long time. I did work on books. I wrote. I, I doc- wrote and produced some documentaries. I was a television producer. I did freelance writing. My first op-ed was in the Wall Street Journal in 1992, um, which I've ta- I think I've talked about on here before. Um, I wrote for the public interest. I wrote in Wilson Corley. I wrote a bunch of things for the journal, I wrote for National Review, I wrote for commentary. And, But I also, because my mom was a somewhat famous literary agent, I kept, I was sort of, the, had been for years since I was a teenager, the vice president of the Lucy and Goldberg Literary Agency. And for those of you who don't know, my mom is a a colorful figure. And um, she had been in touch with a woman named Linda Tripp. And it gets all convoluted, and I've deliberately just tried not to remember much of this stuff, and I'm not going to get into weeds on it here. But my mom was the one who told Linda Tripp to record her conversations with Monica Lewinsky because the history of Bill Clinton was that anybody who made allegations about Bill Clinton and didn't have hard evidence was destroyed. They destroyed their reputation. They had an entire team starting with the 92 campaign to deal with what they called bimbo eruptions. James Carville used to talk about how anyone who accused Bill Clinton of wrongdoing had just basically dragged a $100 bill through a trailer park. And um, they treated, you know, it's, so that's one of the fascinating things about this moment. Everyone's talking about women don't make yep. this up. And then, you know, we have to, we have to believe the victims. And the heart and soul of the Democratic Party had the exact same, exact opposite point of view, which was, purely shoot the messenger, destroy their character, destroy who they were. And so my mom's advice was very good advice. The pro- and they did destroy Linda Tripp's reputation. And um, the only reason they didn't destroy Monica Lewinsky is that because Monica Lewinsky thought she was in love with Bill Clinton and she believed that Bill Clinton was telling her the truth, even the, about, you know, having strong feelings for her, even when, in, if you read the Star Report, it's pretty clear he couldn't remember her name. And, um, and according to a sworn deposition, he never reciprocated any amorous contact which seems <laughs> at least fairly caddish to me at the minimum <laughs> um, and anyway, we want I don't need to get into all of that, but this is one of the reasons why the g file i still to this day make all of these you know like you know all these Bill Clinton jokes, you know like bill clinton um um at uh jello wrestling competition jokes and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, and Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein playing jokes and all that because I don't want people to forget, and I think it's funny to say to point out that the guy was. A pig, you know, and among other things, you know, besides from just playing Baron and the Milkmaid with an intern, there were countless stories that still haven't been reported about him treating random women like, you know, they were um, uh, like, like he was a blind guy and they were the braille instructions to a, you know, turkey pot pie. And so, anyway, uh, what I find fascinating is in the last week or so, Caitlin Flanagan from The Atlantic, Michelle Goldberg, no relation. Matt Iglesias, mm-hmm. um, a bunch of people have started coming forward. Oh, Jeff Greenfield, who I like, um, coming forward saying we really need to deal with the legacy of Bill Clinton. And I'm, you know, I've had my spats with Matt Iglesias over the years and I, I, I don't think we'll ever be friends, but I think people are making, a, a lot of guys on the right are making a bit of a mistake with how they're dealing with this. If you get people to admit that they were wrong, it's fine as an intellectual matter to say, well, it's kind of convenient to admit it now 20 years later and to do it for political purposes in the context of the Moore stuff. At the same time, you don't want to just completely scold and mock people when they come Stupid. around to your position. Yeah. And um, it's always better to, to admit you're wrong earlier than later. And it's always you know, better to not you know fill the air with weasel words about why you're admitting you're wrong. But it's still better than not admitting you're wrong. And so I congratulate them all for the most part. And I I don't want to go mocking anybody about that. At the same time. Um I think David Hassarnia, the Federalists and a bunch of people, you know, and 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 Ben Shapiro, they make a perfectly fine and good point about how doing all of this only when the Clintons are no longer politically viable people in the Democratic Party is is valid. Where but my 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 real complaint, you know, Michelle Goldberg says, Oh, it was because the conspiracy theories of the right wing and they were so um uh they were so nasty to Bill Clinton we just we just couldn't believe them, and that is absolutely true for some people to be sure, but that's not the way I remember it for the most part. What I remember at the time was how many people how many prominent liberals and Democrats defended Bill Clinton's behavior as a good thing in and of itself. Now they weren't necessarily defending one either you know we need a raw. Rob- Juanita Broadwicks rape, but they were defending his, um, you know, his cat, you know, his catting about town and all the rest. And I meant to sort of collate this stuff better, but I went back and found a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Right, so there's an author named Jane Smiley who wrote in The New Yorker about Bill Clinton and all of these allegations against him. And so... I went back and I looked at some of the things that I remember writing about and venting about back in the day. And it wasn't just that people were didn't want it wasn't that people weren't willing to believe that Bill Clinton had done this. It was that people were willing to defend what he had done, which is a pretty big distinction. It's like these these, you know, moral horrors in Alabama saying that even if what Roy Moore is accused of is true, it's OK because of Mary and Joseph or, you know, Um, Or because it was consensual and not all 14-year-olds are innocent. I mean, that stuff is going on a lot today. And it was a very similar thing to what was going on back in the early 90s. And so I'll give you an example. James Smiley, a novelist, feminist novelist, wrote in The New Yorker on October 5th, 1998, maybe what Clinton did in the Oval Office was love or infatuation or just sex. At the very least, it was a desire to make a connection with another person, a a habitual desire for which Clinton is well-known and sometimes ridiculed. But this desire to connect is something I trust, maybe the one thing about him that I trust, because it seems to me to be the one thing that he can't get rid of. If we as a nation choose to put ourselves through the national pain of impeachment rather than the national healing or forgiveness, we will have only ourselves to blame when the next fellow comes along who would rather launch an airstrike than a pass.
1: Right, well, so it's pretty weird because Bill Clinton did both.
0: Yes, he had plenty of airstrikes,
1: and he would do the airstrikes to distract from the passes. Exactly. No, it's an excellent point.
0: <laughs> um, and and this stuff was all over the place. The New York Observer had this no- notorious super gal luncheon at Le Bernardin where ten Manhattan women gathered to drink and talk about Bill Clinton. And uh, some of this I can't again because we're worried about the uh, keeping the mature rating for this podcast out. But it, all of these women are like, um, you know, you know, crones around the village. Well, just talking about how awesome it would be to bed Bill Clinton and it's OK that he does it and how much better the oral sex is going to be between Hillary and Bill now that they're doing that Bill does this stuff and how all of them would be happy to sleep with them. Um, Andrew Sullivan wrote this famous piece of the time called The Scolds," where he argued that the fight against Monica Lewinsky was of a piece with the fight for sexual liberation. Uh, a whole bunch of people wrote this th- wrote this nonsense about something called sexual McCarthyism. Good band name. Uh, uh, what's his face? Alan Dershowitz, who I'm told if he takes Viagra just gets taller. Uh, he wrote a whole book on sexual McCarthyism. And the whole idea was that judging someone's sex life was outrageous and that we should all be free to go and do what we please and let our freak flags fly. Um, I wrote a piece for the magazine in 1998. Maybe if we can link it on the iPod on the podcast page. I don't know how that works. I don't know if you have to sacrifice too many bulls or anything. But... Um, Uh, You know, cataloging all of this, it came out of this argument in the mid 90s that um, among other people, one of the leaders of it was Sidney Blumenthal and his his last piece for The New Yorker magazine um, before he officially went on the Clinton payroll. um, He did this review of Sam Tannenhaus's book about Whitaker Chambers and he goes on at length about how the Cold War was really. Wasn't about national security. Wasn't about you know uh, stemming the tide of communism or uh, dealing with the threat within. It was really all about a sex panic by a bunch of closeted homosexuals, starting with Whitaker Chambers. And there was this thick soup of feminist nonsense and fellow-traveling male dweeb nonsense. Where, in part, because of the corrupting power of Bill Clinton's example, people were basically just saying. No one has any right to judge anybody else's behavior. Gloria Steinem, you know, basically set fire to her credibility by writing a piece for the New York Times op-ed page saying that uh, Monica Lewinsky, or that, no, that Bill Clinton, you know, he sure, he makes inappropriate passes to people, but he took no for answer. Well, that wasn't actually true. But, um, and besides, we feminists need to adopt what became known as the one free grope rule, that you are allowed to sort of, you know, do a free mammogram with some woman um, once. And if she doesn't like it, then you have to stop. And what was so staggeringly hypocritical about all this was the late 80s, the tide was going the entirely other way. You had the John Tower confirmation battle for the defense secretary position, where he, was, he lost uh, the, the slot because of his quote-unquote womanizing. Feminists who had worked with Senator Republican Senator Bob Packwood for years eventually um, uh, uh, cannibalized him uh, because he was a lecherous pig, um, but it was hard for feminists to do at first because he had been such a sort of liberal Republican on on equal rights issues and all the rest. And then there was the Clarence Thomas thing where the worst thing he was alleged to have done was make a joke about a pubic hair on a Coke can. And it still to this day infuriates me when in the movie Jerry Maguire... Which, was, which came out amidst all the Clinton stuff, yep. you have Tom Cruise saying, oh, oh no, I feel like Clarence Thomas because they couldn't say he felt like Bill Clinton because that would be outrageous. And so you had this, this tide moving against sexual harassment and, and against piggish behavior. And then the entire Democratic Party and the liberal intellectual elite, with very few exceptions, basically just threw all of that out the window in order to defend Bill Clinton's behavior. And it, and you had the media journalist establishment, you know, basically just circling a Praetorian Guard around Bill Clinton. And for what? The worst thing that could have happened was that Al Gore would have been president.
1: You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's bizarre. Leonard, a robot would have taken control of human government. That would have been unfortunate. <laughs> the
0: internet would have started earlier.
1: <laughs> um, and so,
0: anyway, I, my point is, is that Jack is always asking me to revisit this issue that I write about in Tyranny Clichés and I've written a couple G-files about, you know, the phrase power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is um, it's from Lord Acton. And Acton believed it the way people understand it today. But that actually is not where the quote comes from. Mm-hmm. What the quote actually means is he was having an exchange of letters with this uh, historian of the, of the papacy and the historian guy, I can't remember his name. Um, Wrote a was asking him about you know what to do about the bad popes you know how do you write about the bad
1: popes because I'm
0: sorry Jack I know you're you know an ultramontane guy but
1: and Michael Pratt over here is from a product of Catholic University yeah okay well you you
0: papists hold your horses and um, (laughs) we'll hold off on the Swiss Guard for now and And uh, Templar um, there is there's there's probably no greater defender of the Catholic Church with the last name Goldberg in all of Western <laughs> civilization. So, um, and you can read, yes. I think, four chapters of defending the Catholic Church in, in, in tyranny cliches. But anyway, this historian guy, he writes, you know, how to, how to account for the bad popes and, and, you know, should you cut them some slack? And Acton says, no, you can't do that. You know, you can't sort of bend the rules about how you judge people just because they're power or great powerful or great men. And and so the corruption that he's talking about was his absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. He wasn't talking about corrupt, powerful people. He was talking about the intellectuals and courtiers around powerful people who bend their principles to fit it. Now, I'm not going to get into a big Trump thing, but we've seen a lot of that um, around Trump where people who used to be really pro free trade aren't anymore. People used to think that coarse language was bad, don't care anymore. People who used to think all sorts of things that Donald Trump doesn't stand for. We're bad, and now they all think they're fine or they make allowances for them. Um, but one example of it was this horrifying poll that came out um, from Brookings and PRI that like I saw the other day that said, you know, in 2011, white evangelical Christians were the most likely to hold it against a politician who, who committed immoral personal conduct. Um, only like 30 percent said that they could look past personal immoral, immoral conduct in a politician. In 2016, 72 percent said that they could tolerate immoral personal conduct by a politician, making in 2016 and probably, I'm sure, in 2017, white evangelical Christians, the demographic in America, most likely to condone uh, immoral personal conduct. They are more likely to condone personal immoral conduct than the average American that's messed up. Right. And it's a sign of how cults of personality can bend people to something. Well, that's exactly what happened in the early 1990s. You know, I went to an all women's college. You know, I make jokes about how it was the Rosa Parks of gender integration, but it was a hotbed of feminist stuff. And I got drenched in this. I read more Foucault than I did Federalist Papers in college. I didn't really finish my education until I came to AEI. And the idea that all of these people who had been making who had been making these sort of almost neo-Victorian rules about, you know, sexual relations and how not even had to have total zero tolerance for anything that smacked of harassment or uncomfortable environments, they threw it all away because they had a crush on Bill Clinton. Nina Burley at Time Magazine was at least honest about it, and I knew Nina a little bit. You know, she said that she would orally service the president, Bill Clinton, solely because he was keeping abortion legal, right, which at least is a realpolitik transactional position I can argue with, right? Mm -hmm. But most of the people who are making these allowances about Bill Clinton, um, they basically just bent or defenestrated their entire moral view and set back a cause they've been working on for 20 years to defend the guy. And so that's what drives me crazy about all this talk about how it was the right wing that made liberals incapable of believing these stories about Bill Clinton when everybody in Washington had heard these stories. And, you know, I, what I'm really hoping comes out of all this is we start getting more people who finally feel free to talk because it doesn't end with Monica Lewinsky and Juanita Broderick and Kathleen Wiley and, and Paula Jones. Um, there were a lot of other people, but the press never went looking for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Matt Iglesias in his piece even says
2: the facts surrounding what was talking about weren't widely disputed at the time in, in the piece he wrote for Vox this week.
0: Yeah, but, but my point is, is that... In order to avoid talking about those facts, they right. actually had to change their morals right. and their intellectual standards. And, and Iglesias didn't do that. He, he was like in high school at the time. But so many people in Washington did. And, you know, and so it was a, for me, a sort of like my view. I mean, I, I think people who listen to this podcast, particularly people who are going to wait around for our reading of Bigfoot Erotica know that I am not exactly a sort of, you know, sheet-sniffing Comstock, right? I don't wag my finger at people about sex, but I'm actually pretty old-fashioned. Don't be a pig, right? you know? And um, Bill Clinton was a pig, and, uh, and he, I believe he was a rapist, you know? I mean, I think he raped Juanita Broderick, and I think she, her her story is entirely plausible. And this sort of, you know, the deny The denial about what Matt is talking about with Juanita Broderick, I think, is true. It was just too terrible to contemplate, so they didn't contemplate it. But the stuff about his all-around, you know, caddish behavior, starting with how, you know, they talked about anybody who accused him of doing anything bad and being a bimbo eruption, that was all out there for plain to see. And they just basically said, well, these rules don't apply anymore. We're going to come up with new rules. It's all moral relativism and situational ethics because of a cult of personality about Bill Clinton. And I think going through that experience at the time is one of the things that has made me sort of more immune to the cult of personality stuff about Donald Trump. I kind of just believe in having you know, a single standard, and, um, and that doesn't mean Handmaid's Tale America. But it means treating people like they're people and being respectful. And I, yep. you know, I did bad things in college, but I didn't rape anybody and I didn't, like, force myself to anybody or anything like that. And I've asked out more than my share of teenagers, but I was a teenager at the time, you know, um, which is, a, I think, an important distinction. Um, anyway, so that was a long rant. If you guys have any follow-up questions, um, which I may or may not answer, then I got to get to an exciting new ad.
1: Uh I this isn't as much of a question as as it is an explanation of why I wanted you to go into this. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean I my first just to make you feel old. Uh my first political memory is the Bill Clinton impeachment stuff. Uh-huh. That was the first consciousness I had of politics at all. And uh the the Clinton era is kind of a weird uh blank spot in terms of the cultural and political memory of people around my age I think because most of the history books were, that we work with are they sort of peter out around the end of the Cold War, yeah. And uh, whereas the political culture that we're aware of, that we have consciousness of, sort of begins with the uh, Florida recount. Right. So there's that. There's yeah. like a ten year period where the history books aren't quite, either aren't quite uh, up to speed of of that era, or they're still debating like what actually happened, yeah, because the there are still a bunch of Clinton hacks around who are offering a false version of history. Right. Um, so it, I think it's important, especially for people my age and for obviously the broader public who still hasn't accepted this, that you that you as a as a witness to this, a living <laughs> witness to this history, uh, explain uh, to the world how how bad of a person Bill Clinton is, was and probably is. I would I think it's fair to say.
0: Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, you know, I, I've been on record thinking that Bill Clinton is going to spend eternity in hell alongside Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance and the cast of cats for a long time. And I could go into chapter and verse and all that. But, you know, one does try to move on. I do think it's funny when these days I, I hear the same stuff I used to hear about Clinton. Right. People yeah. say I don't need to um, that. that My position doesn't matter because I hate Trump. I point of fact, I don't hate Trump. I hated Clinton more. I mean, I actually hated Clinton. I, I, I have a rich, effulgent uh, basket of, of attitudes towards Donald Trump. Um, but I wouldn't say hate is the primary one. But it doesn't matter, even if I did hate him. It right. doesn't mean what I'm saying is a lie, right? Um, and people would say, well, you just hate Bill Clinton, therefore we don't have to listen to you or your facts don't matter. And this is an ancient, you know, I'm sure you know the Latin phrase for it, but it's an ancient rhetorical trick that was really introduced into America by the communists, um, where they would dispute... Ayn Rand makes this... Not Ayn Rand, uh, Hannah Arendt. they very different people. Whoa. Um, <laughs> don't, don't mix those two up again. Yeah. Um, both roll in their graves. Um, uh, well, Ayn Rand clearly does not believe in an afterlife. So That's true. I can say whatever I want but about you her. But you've got to be careful, <laughs> because I
1: think that whatever whatever sort of metaphysical uh, worldview actually dominates, Ayn Rand has sufficient willpower, even... 30-plus years after her death to make something happen afterwards.
0: Well, actually, what she has is a whole bunch of, like, Star Trek convention cast-off fans who will come and hunt me down. (laughs) So, um, either way, so... uh, No, but Han Aaron made this point that one of the things that that the communists sort of... And I'm sure it happened before this. I'm sure it goes back to ancient Greece. But the habit of disputing inconvenient facts by attacking the motives of the person who brings them, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, And I hear the same thing about Trump is that you know my argument has no weight no matter what facts i marshal no matter what reason i bring to it um because of my feelings about donald trump and it's this it's it's so funny how so much of this stuff echoes that this this triumph of feelings over reason where um the argument doesn't matter it mat- what matters is um your sense of tribal solidarity yeah. and so but anyway we should do a whole thing i'll have someone in who could really talk about it about the 1990s. There were a lot of very weird, interesting things going on in the 1990s intellectually. Uh, people forget, it's kind of funny, the Weekly Standard back in those days, which was very high in its oats, if that's a phrase, what's, what's the right Feeling its oats or something like that. Uh, high in the right saddle. High yeah, in the saddle that, of something that, that eats definitely. oats. And, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, they get called neoconservatives all the time, they get called neoconservatives to this day. Um, But Bill Kristol back in the day rejected the term neoconservative, called himself a neo-Reaganite. And David Brooks back then was writing all of these um, passionate essays about the need for a national greatness agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, And that seems to have just sort of, and what they, in fairness, what they meant by national greatness and what Donald Trump means by national greatness, very different things, but it was sort of interesting. And it was very triggering to a lot of libertarians back in the 90s. Um, The very first panel I did in Washington was on the issue of national greatness, um, as put forward by the weekly standard. And I remember saying at the time, never before have I been so torn about an issue that matters so little. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, the nineties are a much more interesting period that haven't gotten the attention they deserve in part because there's just so many people yeah. who are still invested in them. um, But, you know, a lot of what this alt-right stuff is comes out of stuff that happened in the 90s. Um, um, A lot of our foreign policy mistakes came out of taking the wrong lessons from the 1990s. And uh, it's an interesting topic. But I just, you know, I spent a good year of my life talking about Bill Clinton's pants and the idea of, like, getting... And, you know... But anyway, so the only part of the origin story that's probably worth talking about is... So I've been this television producer... And then this thing blew up. Rich Lowry had just taken over National Review you know, fairly recently. And um, as much as I was, you know, people were threatening my mom and they were doing all these things, saying all these terrible things about her. And Paul Begala and the entire DNC was, was crapping from a great height on my mom and on Linda Tripp. And the RNC didn't know anything. Nobody knew anything. I was one of the only handful of people who knew anything about anything that was going on and who Linda Tripp was and what was on the tapes mm-hmm. and yada, 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 and what Lucianne Goldberg's great agenda was. And there was nobody out there who could defend her, you know. And so I defended Linda Tripp as a matter of honor. I defended my mom because she's my friggin mom. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: something John Podhortz has... Uh... Didn't he roast his mother? He roasted his own mother. Yeah. yeah no. So um, just, uh, let's just kick kick that dead horse again. Well,
0: Larry Klayman, who used to run the, um,
1: oh, what's it called?
0: The legal group that does all the transparency lawsuits. Tom Fitton runs it now. Oh, Judicial Watch. A judicial Watch. Larry Klayman sued his own mom. So there's always that. Wow. Um, he also had a personal makeup artist, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, that was in the 1990s, dude. <laughs> um, and um, where was it? Oh, so anyway, uh so I ended up starting doing a lot of TV and it turns out that being implicated in some sort of grand conspiracy, which wasn't that grand to overthrow the, you know, the liberal icon, democratic president of the United States, isn't all that conducive with doing, you know, work for public television culturally. (laughs) Yeah. And so I lost my job over it. Um, I mean, I, I quit over it. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And, um, but I'd spent most of the 1990s like sort of recreating my life and taking myself kind of seriously and like doing filling in all the holes in my education and being an earnest wonky writer writing for places like the public interest and elsewhere and and all of a sudden i was dragged into this thing and it was kind of scary and kind of fun and i had some great stories and i learned a lot about washington and i learned i mean one of the things i learned was how full of crap so many people in washington are which is a good thing to learn early yeah and one of the fascinating things is, so, you know, my mom, and I'm going to have my mom on the podcast at some point, and we're just going to tell stories about old Washington. But my mom uh, used to work in Washington, and she was sort of a figure here, and she'd been a troublemaker in the past. And I would go to things like the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and people would come up to me. And so my mom's name is Lucianne Goldberg. And people would come up to me, and she's, oh, Jonah. Please have your mom, your mother, call me. I love her. We're old friends. I've known her for years. We used, to, I, you know, I, I can't believe I've lost touch. So please tell Lucien, you know, and they would mispronounce her first name. She's like really? So you were that close?
1: That was the that was the nickname. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, and um, you know, please tell Lucinda. You know, and I was like, yeah, that you did. don't know my mom. And, warmer. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was doing this TV stuff, and I admit some of it went to my head, and that was also a good thing to get out of your system, thinking TV is all that important. And and Rich asked me, because he had been calling me as a reporter about this stuff for a long time, if I wanted to be a contributing editor at National Review, and I, I liked the idea because it's kind of emasculating being a grown man and having Lucianne Goldberg's son as your <laughs> Chiron on Larry King. and. Um, Wait, is that, is that true? Or oh, yeah, sure? no, it happened a bunch. There's <laughs> plenty of video of that out there. And um, um, and so I became a contributing editor in National Review, which meant I got paid a dollar a word for every piece I wrote for the magazine. So if I had a really productive month, I could make about $1,200 a month. And um, and then, back then, the National Review Online website was, uh, was awful. And uh, Rich gets mad every time I bring this up, but when I came on board... It was full of a bunch of bobbing Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky heads. Uh-huh. And I didn't know what I was... I, I Honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, you know, spending my time... You know, one of the reasons why the Goldberg File has this shtick about me talking to my couch is because I would spend, like, 24 hours a day walking around my house with not knowing what to do with myself because I had lost my... I didn't have my job. I quit my job. And, and then Rich said, you know, we're trying to update the website. Do you want to do, like, a diary about all the impeachment stuff and the Clinton stuff? And I said, Sure. And that's how The Goldberg File was born. We spent about four minutes trying to come up with a name for it. We talked about the Goldberg Variations and this and that. And we, oh, let's call it The Goldberg File. And so that's how I became one of the very first political bloggers. Um, the Goldberg File was originally very bloggy. The word did not exist yet. Um, you know, an in Internet year is a Methuselah. And... Um, it did really, all of a sudden, it just did really, really well. Sort of like this podcast doing so much better than like, you know, the weekly substandard. And, um, golden touch right here. And, uh, uh, and it started getting more traffic, like the homepage and whatever, and it was built up. And I was having fun. I had nothing else to do. And one of the great things about it was I learned how to write fast. And, um, what I also did was, uh, not write constantly about Bill Clinton. I sort of moved yeah. my writing chops around because I, you know, considered myself a writer. And um, it took off. It did really well. And about six months in, then the publisher, Ed Capano, and Rich call me and they say, hey, we're thinking about starting up like a sister magazine to the web to the, to the print magazine uh, and we were wondering if you want to be the editor. And so I became the founding editor of National Review Online. And so to the extent you want an origin story, that's as much as the origin story as I I can give you now. And then, you know, so in the beginning, National Review Online was a real work in progress. Um, uh, This is around the time that Mickey Kaus started the Kaus Files, which he got the idea for from the Goldberg file. And then shortly after that, Andrew Sullivan got the idea for his blog um, from Kaus Files. So in a lot of ways, I'm the George Washington of blogging. And then they decided to create the X file. That's right. That's (laughs) that's exactly right. And... um, (laughs) Um, and so, uh, in those early days, I remember, you know, Larry Kudlow would call me and dictate his column to me over the phone because no one wanted to write for a website. Right. And, like, Larry couldn't be bothered to type anything. And so he'd be like, you know, <coughs> as Calvin Coolidge once said, I'd say, hey, Larry, wouldn't you rather have, like, as the great Calvin Coolidge? Oh, that's great. Use that. Use that. You know, and I was <laughs>
1: typing this up and... <coughs> wow. The, the only familiarity I have with... Column dictation is the the scene in in Gandhi where uh yeah um martin Sheen's c- uh, character is dictating that column about the the amritsar massacre uh-huh. uh yeah. to his New York Times editors
0: dictating copy used to be a really big thing wow. before before fax machines. what else would you do if you yeah. were a reporter in the field and you wrote something on a typewriter
1: mm, yeah. um, I don't know
0: and so thank you al Gore <laughs> there you go yeah if it weren't for al Gore. my favorite thing about Al Gore and the internet thing is. When someone asked Bill Clinton whether or not it was, because Bill Clinton had an ego so large, s- smaller planet circled around it, um, they asked him, what about this thing about Al Gore inventing the internet? And Clinton goes, and I can't do a good Clinton impersonation, because, well, I can tell you this, he deserves more credit than I do. <laughs> it was like, that much credit, really? You know? um, Wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, we should now talk about uh, something far more important, uh, filthy lucre in commerce. I want to talk to you guys about a pretty cool new uh, advertiser on here and a pretty cool new uh, company. And we're really flattered that they're advertising with us. And we've been told it is okay to make the occasional hallucinogenic drug joke about it, even though it has nothing to do with those things. It's called tripping.com.
1: Triple Rainbow. <laughs> I'm, I'm really surprised that they got that domain name, frankly.
0: I am, too, and I wonder what they paid for. Um, you know, Maybe a naked Indian came out of the mist and <laughs> gave it to them. Um, <laughs> so, tripping.com, I don't know if you know what it is, so that's why I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, but it's actually, I talked to them last week about it, and I've checked out the site, and it's kind of cool. I'm going to get to it in a kind of weird way. You know that really creepy, creepy dude from the Trivago ads who... Yeah. <laughs> the hotels you can
2: find
1: tomorrow
0: or on any spot. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. so uh, there's something about him. You know what the Uncanny Valley is? Yes. I know you know what it is. So Uncanny Valley is, uh, it's a well-documented thing in neuroscience where the more lifelike something seems, the closer it gets to actually life, actually human-like, the creepier we find it, right? So, um, you know, uh, like... Tom Hanks and Polar Express just seems weird have you ever seen um, uh, Mars needs moms right uh, it's really really creepy movie because it's the humans seem so real and also there's all this weird stuff about grown men abducting small children and it's really kind of creepy but the Travago guy reminds me of that right yeah, and, also
1: Al Gore in real life is a good example of the Uncanny Valley
0: that's right I've written about Al Gore being <laughs> shockingly lifelike quite a few times in fact um, I actually wrote a one of my greatest columns of all time about whether or not Al Gore was an alien. Because, for, for, first of all, he was born nine months after the uh, Roswell, New Mexico incident at Area 51. Mm. Um, and he once called the editor of the Washington Post to complain that the picture of planet Earth on the front page was upside down. Ooh. Whoa. Which, how would he know that? Exactly. Because yeah. there's no such thing as upside down. In <laughs> this is a stay woke. So, <laughs> uh, but, so anyway, back to tripping. Tripping basically is what Travago is for for hotels. Tripping is for um, home rental rentals, right? And I'm, I've always been worried about this advertising thing because I really don't want to like hawk products that I don't like or believe in, and all that kind of stuff. And it makes me feel weird. And you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you gold, but I'm not going to tell you that that if you don't have get it, the zombies are going to eat your face or anything. But I actually am a big fan of home rental stuff. I've done it a bunch of times with my wife. One of the reasons why we do it is we like to cook. And when you go to someplace, um, if you go to someplace like at the beach or whatever, sometimes the restaurants around there are kind of grim, or at least there's nothing special about them, but you can actually buy pretty cool local ingredients. But if you're staying at some hotel, which is almost invariably more expensive when you do all the math... Um, you can't cook it, right? And you know, Room service gets to be a pain, and sometimes you just want to sort of be a family on the couch, that kind of thing. In Europe, we once did it. Um, we once rented a place in Paris, uh, which was fantastic, where you could really go to those great markets, and you can cook for yourself and do all that kind of thing. If you go to the beach, uh, a lot of that stuff that the hotel will charge you an arm and a leg for to rent is usually sort of in the, the, the garage already or in the attic. It's part of the thing. Um, You can relax a bit. You don't have to worry about checkout time and maids and all that kind of stuff. So I'm a big fan of of, of renting places away. And so what what tripping does is it basically takes all of the websites. It's a a agglomerator, what do you call it? Aggregator. Aggregator of all of the websites, Verbo, HomeAway, all those kind of places, um, and puts them all in one place. Because most people look to like five different websites when they're looking to Um, rent a a house away someplace. And this puts them all in one place. It lets you um, price shop. I did not know this, but a lot of people put houses on different websites at different prices um, because some websites claim to be really high end and others are sort of more down market. And so people expect to pay more from the high end sites, even though it's the same house you would get from the down market one. It puts them all together. With tripping.com, one search lets you filter. Compare and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with Tripping.com. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your next trip, head to Tripping.com slash dingo today. Yes. That's Tripping.com slash dingo Tripping.com slash Dingo, because Dingo is our code word here at The Remnant for all good things that you get from our advertisers. Do not use any of those cheap, lesser phrases that you might hear on some substandard podcasts. (laughs) Only go with Dingo. In fact, have fun. If you hear someone advertise on one of these other sites, and even if they don't advertise on us, see if Dingo will work for you. (laughs) All right. We're, We're taking the fight to them. So that's tripping.com slash dingo.
1: And, and we got through that without making any drug jokes except for at the beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So It's called a gateway advertisement.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, Let them flow.
0: So we don't have a lot of time left. Um, but we're still, oh, first of all, we're going through music submissions. Yep. We're going to be changing our music. Or getting new music fairly soon. Mike, give an update on that. Do you want to talk about it at all?
2: No, we have really great submissions. We're really grateful yeah. for everyone that's did. We're listening to them all, reviewing them. And again, hopefully after Thanksgiving, we'll have a,
0: an official update on what we're going to do. Okay, so there's still time for that. If you want to send in more, there's not much, but there's some. Yep. Theremnantpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Theremnantpod at gmail.com is our email for all things. But even better is going and reviewing us at iTunes or. Any other place where you get your podcasts and saying, hopefully, saying nice things about us, or at least, at minimum, bad things about our com- competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I have not had a chance. It's been a kind of crazy week, but I had promised last, I promised two weeks ago that last week we would do as tasteful a stage reading of some Bigfoot erotica as possible because a lot of people didn't believe that it exists. So for people who are offended by Bigfoot erotica, um, I don't blame you. But you can tune out now. Um Jack so it's Jack has a you know Jack's my research assistant here at at AI. Jack um does a lot of things for me, a lot of high-end intellectual work. But it's a more it's a more eclectic variety of work than a lot of research assistants here at AI who just have to usually just have to do sort of econometric witchcraft or whatever those people do, I don't know. It's a box of chocolates. Right. Yeah. So Last week I sent um, Jack. I, I Do by email. I can't remember now. Last week I asked Jack um, to spend no more than what ten dollars, seven dollars, seven dollars, um, from my Amazon account, uh, because most of the Bigfoot erotica novels are either free on the Kindle um, or like two ninety nine. And I said, you can download some Bigfoot erotica. Um, I started getting all of these. Emails from Amazon saying your order of, <laughs> well, we'll read from the titles in a minute, um, uh, which was weird. And I have your have your advertisements changed online at all since then? Not yet. Okay, oh, really, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, I'm worried oh, about it. Actually, true funny story. So I was with an old Clinton speechwriter once, leaving Fox News it was years ago, and he was now working in communication stuff. And he did a big meeting um, with a bunch of like big corporate media guys. And he was pitching them on some internet strategy. And the CEO um, asked in front of the entire room, he said, hey, I got a question. What? You know, what is with all of these, like, Viagra and penis enlargement ads? They're all over the place on the internet. It's like every site I go to, <laughs> um, all I see are these things. And he didn't know that... Personalization is a thing. Yeah, personalization. <laughs> if, if you search for these things, it's going to show up in your embedded feed, ad feed. And he had just basically told the entire room that I had to pretend they're like, "Yeah, I'm. In, I want to know that too." You know. And, and um, so anyway, um, I've yet to see any Bigfoot erotica ads, um, but you know, it, they're hard to find amidst all of the sort of Sasquatch porn and 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 vampire romances that I get anyway. So. I have not had a chance to review any of of, of Jack's selections, but I want to honor, if I make a promise on this podcast and I'm going to do something, as a principle, I want to honor it whenever possible. I would like there to be no explicit, well, you use your best judgment and you can um, euphemize here or there, but why don't you... You're going to do the you want to do a reading
1: of Bigfoot? Oh, you're going to let me do it? I'm going to yeah, but well, you picked them out. <laughs> oh jeez. Well, do you want uh, All right, well, I'll read it. Fun. Well, it, no, these it. are this is this this uh piece of paper here has the list of titles on. Okay, it. so we uh, read those first. Okay,
0: so there's Broken In by Bigfoot by Jacqueline D. Cirk. Uh there's Ganged by Bigfoot by Lori Quick. There's Bigfoot Loves Sex: A Sasquatch Erotic Tale by JC Coppola. This is my favorite. Fifty Shades of Furry by Brittany (laughs) Taylor. (laughs) And abducted by by Bigfoot, Amelia Moore. Turn it over, there's more. Oh, excellent. Uh, There's (laughs) Bigfoot's New Mate by Soichiro Irons. I love his work. Um, (laughs) And...
1: Is there one? There should be one more on there, I think. And there's
0: another one that says Bigfoot's new mate. Maybe how how embarrassing for two different authors to come up with the same (laughs) erotica (laughs) title.
1: Well, have you gotten into the uh, the most um, obviously uh, um, innuendo laden name on that list? Oh well, that's well, I guess maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll keep it off of the podcast. So
0: uh, there's a some stand-up comic who has this long, pretty fun. Maybe it's Big J Okerson or something. It's really raunchy, but he's got this long, extended uh, bit about how bigfoots are actually really common, or big feet, I should say. Yes. And um, but the problem is is that they go around just having sex with people in their tents and no one wants to come forward and admit that it happened. And uh. he does this whole thing about how Bigfoot unzips the tent, and he just puts his finger over his mouth and goes, shh, don't
1: talk. <laughs> and- <laughs> well, there's uh, Mitch Hedberg, the uh, bizarre, uh, constantly drug-laden comedian. He had the... He was just known for these sort of, like... Imagine Groucho Marx jokes, but if if Groucho Marx were, like, stoned on, on like, three different drugs. And so one, one joke he had was that... Uh, Bigfoot's out there, but he's not scared of Bigfoot. He's scared of the fact that Bigfoot is, is blurry. He's real, but he's blurry, and that's, that's more terrifying to him than anything else.
0: All right, so from Bigfoot's new mate, we've got Bigfoot doesn't mind being locked up and studied for science as he's decided to take a mate, the sexy daughter of the man who captured him. Will his caretaker be able to resist the urges of the alpha male? My guess is no. This is like from the book description. Yeah,
1: but I have I have here, so I have what I think is a uh, a passage from one of these that we can actually read.
0: Okay, I want to read this one first. This is this. Okay, so this is from the the jacket copy of Bigfoot Loves Sex, a Sasquatch Erotic Tale. Angela Deckard is tar- Angela Decker is tired of her sexless marriage. For as much as she loves her husband Arnold, his controlling ways and non-existent sex drive have driven her to the point of breaking. Little does she know that Bigfoot loves sex (laughs) until she stumbles into the forest during Sasquatch mating season and finds the mysterious lover of her beastly dreams. In this short, lusty, erotic tale that is sure to please, fans of fantasy romance books will be delighted to find out that Bigfoot ...is more than ready to pick up where Arnold left off. Fans of monster sex books... I guess that's a whole other genre. Who knew this was just a (laughs) subgenre? I guess that makes sense. Fans of monster sex books will find themselves caught up... ...in a whirlwind of laughter and paranormal romance... ...as they watch this quirky paranormal sex study unfold. Bigfoot is the king of the forest... ...and this huge-sized monster, hint, hint... ...will stop at nothing to woo the woman of his dreams... Camping has never been so fun or so hot. Okay, so you got one example, because I think we've done There's enough pandering.
1: Okay, well, I'm, uh, yeah, go for it. I mean, you can stop at any time if uh, starting below that line. That's what she told Bigfoot. <laughs> um,
0: his overwhelming scent turned, okay, we should fact check this as we go. I, for one, do not believe, it says, his overwhelming scent turned her on. So an. Un- well, I, wait, I believe that there's an overwhelming scent. That it turned her on right, is no the problem. problem right? Two Pinocchios. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm mean, like sunny bunch after a Star Wars marathon. <laughs> um His overwhelming scent turned her on. Fear and terror made her breathing faster. And so the sensitive beast that he was, he saw it as an invitation. He pushed her all the way down on her back and lay on top of her in the leaves of the forest floor. He was kneeling next to her with one hand on the ground next to her head, and with the other, he began touching her over the bearskin. Where did the bearskin come from? He felt her breasts and grunted approval that she was an adult. So, he's already ahead of Roy Moore. (laughs) Um, He was massive. His hand was as big as her head, and his chest was nearly four feet across. She tried to let go of her fears that she might behave in an unbigfoot like manner and alarm him. This seems like a reasonable fear to me. <laughs> but he lowered his face next to her ear and whispered suggestively something she didn't under- she couldn't understand. Her linguistic ear tuned into his tones. There was a bit of lightness to it, just a few syllables ending with the sound n Was he calling her a girl? Perhaps she seemed more like a teen Bigfoot to him. So now we're back in the wow. Roy Moore character. All right, so that's all you get.
1: Yeah, you, I, I thought that was as, that's good. That's, that's PG ish. Yeah. yeah, it's purient. and, and it's, grotesque. And, it's it's surely PG in the like that that awkward '80s era before the PG-13 rating existed. That's right.
0: <laughs> um, it's like when trains, planes, and automobiles gets an R because they insisted on putting this torrent of F-bombs in the middle of it. And other than that, it was a perfectly great PG movie. Mm-hmm. Um, still infuriates me. But All right, so we are done. Thank you all for tuning in. Please send your comments. More reviews, please. Um, either because you like the show or just out of spite, that's fine. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.
1: Can you understand me? Are you a man? Well, oh, it never hurts to ask. The woman. Can you understand the woman that... Easy now, easy. I don't want to hurt you. I'd like to think the feeling's mutual.